0: Hello and welcome to the DorkaMotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're talking about suicidal speed and splinters, the history of four-track racing in America, an incredible era in American speed that lasted about 15 years just after the turn of the century, where things happened that will absolutely boggle your mind. Yes, it's suicidal speed and splinters on this episode of the DorkaMotive Podcast with Brian Loans. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. Hey, everybody. Brian Loans back with another episode of the Dorkomotive podcast. This one kicking off season two in the world of Dorkomotive. And this is a topic that has been requested by many, many listeners. And so now it's time to delve into the board track era of racing in the United States. And for those of you unfamiliar... To give you a general overview here, between about 1910 and 1930, there were dozens of racetracks around the country made of wood, specifically made of two-by-fours, that ranged in length from a half a mile all the way up to two miles. And these tracks were the fastest racing surfaces really in the world in many ways. They're also the most deadly and dangerous, and while it seems like a completely nuts idea to run a or to build a racetrack out of wood when we talk about the reasons why the evolution of these racetracks and how they ultimately led to the speedways that we race on today you will kind of understand where we were coming from or where the world of racing was coming from at this point in time to tell this story properly we have to actually go back a little bit before the era of the board track in terms of motorcycles and automobiles and talk about bicycle racing because before people raced motorcycles or cars Bicycle racing was a worldwide phenomenon, so big, in fact, that most of the early popular race car drivers or motorcycle racers were actually bicycle racers that transitioned over. Bicycles, of course, and bicycling was a massive pastime in the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century across the world. Um, the bicycles, whether we're talking about the big wheel style bicycles that we all know, with the giant wheel in the front and the little trailing wheel, Or the typical bicycles we see today with two kind of normal-sized tires on them, Um, people rode them all over the place. They were a very cheap means of transportation, and they were very popular. As we all know, any sort of transportation form ultimately gets raced, and bicycles are no different. Whether there were kids racing from corner to corner or adults participating in some of the loosely organized early bicycle races, um, it ultimately led to professional bicycle racing, which was a worldwide phenomenon that drew spectator crowds that were massive. One of the reasons they drew such huge crowds is because of where they were contested. Bicycle races were held on things called velodromes, which are originally developed in France and in Europe, and ultimately would lead to the board track speedways that would come to populate the United States. A velodrome was very simply a circle made of wood, banked very steeply, that bicycle racers would get on and pedal their brains out and race each other around and around and around. Uh, It is perhaps the earliest form of circle track style racing built to be a spectator sport. And, of course, when we build a spectator sport in an arena to hold this spectator sport in, that brings a lot of money and advertisement and media, and ultimately it builds some really big personalities and builds some really big um, influences, if you will, in this genre. And that brings us to one of the principal players that will really lay the foundation quite literally and figuratively to board track racing in America— his name was Jack Prince, and he's from England. He was born in 1859 in Coventry, England, and by the early 1880s, he had traveled to the United States, and he had done that because he was a champion motor- or champion bicycle racer, I should say, in Europe. So he comes over to the United States in 1883 as a representative of some English uh, bicycle manufacturers, and he was not racing... I should say as a championship level professional in the US, but he was well known. So he was doing exhibition races. And in August of 1883, he was being called, you know, the champion of Europe and all this other stuff as he was traveling around the United States. And he became part of a bicycle racing team that would put on exhibitions and would race at these uh, indoor velodromes across America. So he became fascinated with the construction of the facilities, how they were laid out, kind of the successful facilities versus the ones that were kind of dingy and crummy that they would go to, and um, he helped his cause of of fame by continuing to be a very competitive racer. Even though it was exhibition level, he was still drawing huge crowds, and people across the country certainly knew who he was. Now, by the time we get to about 1885, he's deciding to uh, hang it up. A couple years on the racing circuit, he thinks that he's going to step away from the racing of bicycles and move into the construction of these velodromes. So obviously seeing the opportunity available, he knows that uh, a lot of cities and towns could use a velodrome. It would be a popular event. It'd be a popular location for people to hang out. And he feels as though if he can bring the right type of expertise in construction to the right investors, he'll be able to kind of, if you will, sell a lot of these different facilities across the country. So that's what he transitions into. He transitions into basically the construction business at this point. And these bicycle velodromes are about a one-sixth-mile circle. They were not an oval. They were a perfect circle. They were about a sixth-mile long for the outdoor venues and about a tenth-mile long for indoor venues that you had to build a roof over. They would seat thousands of people because they would put grandstands up just like you would at any racetrack in the modern day. And they would pack these places. I mean, we're talking a sport as big as as boxing, horse racing, or baseball at this time in America. And the other thing that was kind of growing at the same exact time as the interest in velodromes was the interest in mechanical or mechanized vehicles. We're talking about motorcycles. We're talking about automobiles. And motorcycle racing was mostly held as kind of point-to-point races you know you would race from city to city Um, you would race from location to location you would race on a dirt track that was at a fairgrounds and the same was really true for automobiles but the major problem in the united states at this time in history especially when we talk about racing cars which we're going to get into in a little bit down the road here in specificity but the roads were terrible in this country there was very little opportunity To race automobiles on paved surfaces like in Europe when they raced almost all the racing in Europe at this time in history was done on open roads they had better roads they were paved or they were cobblestone or they were brick yes there were certain paved areas in the United States major metropolitan areas had races like the Vanderbilt Cup um, in the New York City area Um, there was you know stuff going on there but when you went to the majorities of cities in the United States the roads were were bad and they were not suitable as a racing surface Racing on dirt tracks was fine, but it was very uh, violent on the cars. there was dust everywhere. You couldn't necessarily see what was going on. It was not really an environment that was to the level at this time in history of watching other professional, quote unquote, sports. And this even stood true for what was the greatest racing facility built in the world to that point, which was Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which held its first race in 1909. What so many people forget is that Indianapolis Motor Speedway was not the brickyard when it was first opened. It was not even paved. It was covered in a uh, kind of a weird combination of different types of gravel, and it was kind of uh, it was limestone and gravel and all kinds of stuff that was sprayed over the top of to try to bind it all together. This did not work. So early races at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway were horrendous because guys were blowing tires out left and right, The track was very slow because it would just fall apart. And it was so bad that the Automobile Club of America that was overseeing racing competition at this time in history uh, started basically refused uh, to, to honor or hold races at the facility. It was dangerous because people were getting hit with rocks and shards of everything. The cars were getting beat up just wasn't worth their trouble. So in order to fix that problem, the ownership of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway had to pave the place. And of course, they paved it in bricks. And by paving it in bricks, they created this iconic racetrack. But they also spent $700,000 in around 1910 to do it. That is an immense amount of money. It's an immense amount of money in 2020, let alone 110 years ago. So the Economics of board track racing start to become a little bit more clear when we tell that story. And I'm telling you that story to set up the first major breakthrough we have when we start to make this evolutionary leap from the velodromes of uh, bicycle racing to the motordromes of motorcycle and automobile racing. That breakthrough comes in California, just outside of Los Angeles, at a place called Playa del Rey in 1910, where a facility called the Los Angeles Motor Drome is built by English born Jack Prince and a Hungarian born engineer named Frederick Moscovics. Let's meet Moscovics and let's hear more about the Los Angeles Motor Drome. So it has been said that Jack Prince uh, was kind of devoid of engineering knowledge, but he was a very, um, I guess, intrinsically smart guy, and he would often find himself teamed up with smart people as well. So in this case, we have to talk about a guy named Frederick Moskovich, who was a mechanical engineer that had worked for companies like Stutz Motor Company. He had been an engineer for uh, Maybach and Daimler in Germany. Uh, He actually ran the Daimler Racing Team in the early 1900s. So this was a guy who not only had been around racing, but had been around race tracks and kind of understood the sporting elements of things. Now, Moscovics also was a former bicycle racer. He had become friends with Jack Prince. Um, During their lifetime, they had exchanged letters and stuff like that. So uh, when... Moscovich's heard about the construction of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He was employed by the Remy Electric Company, like Delco Remy Electric, and he was living in California, and he thought for sure that this whole racing thing was going to be a big hit really all across the country, and why should those guys in Indianapolis kind of get all the love? So he got hooked up with Prince, likely through a series of letters, and he brings Prince out to California, and they kind of talk through what their idea is, and their idea is to create this first-ever dedicated board track racing facility for automobiles. And it is interesting in the fact that as we talk about board track racing, there is a definite evolution of how these tracks were built. And a lot of people think the, you've seen one, you've seen them all, but really every one of these things in their own way was a little bit different. So for this very first construction project, this very first track that was built is the most basic, I would argue, of pretty much all of them as, as time goes forward. So. It is uh, a very kind of simple layout. It is a perfect circle one mile around. Uh, It is effectively a one-turn racetrack in that the whole place is a turn. So a one-mile perfect circle. um, It was built by supposedly uh, Prince walking around just kind of laying stakes in the ground and, and, you know, kind of directing things by hand. As we talked about a few minutes ago, it cost $700,000 to pave Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In bricks and it also took a long time to get the job done fantastic co- cost of money and we talked about the economic differences between board tracks and physical paved racetracks well here's the most stark example January 31st 1910 they begin to build the motor drum it was done in 25 days it took 30 more days to finish the grandstands but the track itself was done in 25 days the grandstand done 30 days later, so a total of 55 days. The cost was $75,000 to build the entire place, 75 dollars as opposed to $700,000 just to pave Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They splurged through another 10 grand at it to hang giant arc lights over so they could have night racing. So arc lights, um, you know, a uh, an early form of, of lighting, threw it a lot of light, and they kind of hung these uh, basically lampposts all around the facility to have night racing. They used pine wood. How much pine wood did they use? The equivalent of 300 miles of boards. Why? This is one thing that's not going to change about the construction of these tracks. The tracks are built with boards, but the boards are not laid flat. They're stood up on end. So they're all, they all use 2x4s to build the racing surface, usually in 16-foot lengths. So obviously we've all seen a 2x4 in our lives, if, the, if you live in a, a home, most likely it's a wood frame house. that has two by fours holding the walls up. And well, a two by four does not measure a perfect two inches by four inches. The flat side is four inches, you know, by the name. And if you stand it up on end, that's a two inch width you have on the end. So the boards are stood up on end and nailed together. Uh, these courses were banked. And we're going to talk about banking as we go through this story. Understanding why the boards were stood up on end and not laid on their side is important. Just think of it this way. If you have a 16-foot-long board, which is the easiest way to curve it? Uh, Yes, it would be to stand it up on its side, and then basically you could have uh, some, you know, you could, a 16-foot-long 2x4 actually is fairly bendy if you put a couple guys on it. So if you're going to form these tracks into circles or ultimately ovals that we're going to talk about, you've got to be able to bend the boards. And uh, trying to bend a 2x4 laying on its side is not only impossible, it's it's foolhardy because it's just going to break in half. The volume of wood used is incredible. As I mentioned, 300 miles if you laid the boards kind of all end to end. um, It works out to basically be two full shiploads of lumber that was used. And there is also kind of a supporting cast here. How do you get all that lumber to the facility? Well, you have to talk to the railroad line and have them build you a spur to run trains out to haul all the lumber out to the site and bang it all together. So there's a lot of infrastructure here that has to be to be run through. And again, this is the biggest track that uh, Jack Prince has built by uh, multiple factors. You know, he went from from really short bicycle velodromes to this mile perfect circle, which was called the pie pan, because if you looked at it, it kind of looked like a pie pan, circular pan, uh, a 20 degree banking all the way around. The height of the outside of the track was 25 feet up, and then when you came down to the bottom, there was a 30-foot apron of of stone down there as well, which I guess is a cushion if somebody falls off the thing. But um, there is also a guardrail, yay, on the outer rim, which is also made of wood. We're going to talk a lot about the inherent horrendous uh, safety record of these places, but there you have it. So 300 miles of wood, a circle racetrack that is banked at 20 degrees, and uh, it is cost of about a tenth of the cost to build this place than it was to pave the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in bricks. The railroads love these type of places. They actually liked building the extra spur because they knew they were going to get a lot of traffic just because of how popular auto racing and motorcycle racing were becoming. So they were absolutely not opposed to add the infrastructure to get to these tracks because ultimately they knew they would profit from it. Ironically, uh, so few people had any mechanical means to get to the racetrack, they're going to go watch cars and motorcycles race because they don't have them themselves. These are exotic machines. They ironically need the trains to get to go watch the car races. 40,000 seats were built. There was a covered grandstand that was kind of the um, premium seating that held 12,000, but uh, you had 28,000 people that were able to sit in the California sun and uh, check out the racing action. The racetrack opens, and it is a massive, massive success. It is packed basically every time they open it. It is the home run of home runs. They really felt as though they knew it was going to be popular, but the reality was this thing went absolutely berserk in terms of investments and the money they made back. Um, Prince, over the course of his life, made untold fortunes on these racetracks, and Moscovics obviously made made out like a bandit as well. So... The motorcycle races were held um, as really as kind of a placeholder, if you will. You know, in this time, and a one-mile circle for racing motorcycles was a really long track. And as we get past this, we're gonna we're gonna kind of deviate and talk about motorcycle racing at this time. But on May 8, nineteen ten, there was a uh, motorcycle race held, and. There was new speed records set uh, at basically every distance. And the reason, of course, the length of the racetrack allowed the bikes to get better speed. And, of course, the banking was absolutely uh, perfect for them at this time. In 1911, the Motodrome hosted its first 24-hour race. And that was an automobile race. Uh, A Fiat won that. And can you imagine a one-mile circle just looping and looping and looping and looping Uh, the average 62.5 miles an hour? And then Eddie Hash of the same year, a name we're going to talk about in a little while, a famous motorcycle racer, uh, set a new speed record uh, averaging 95 miles an hour over the course of a measured mile. And then the very first um, three-digit motorcycle speed record came in 1912. A racer named Lee Humiston broke the 100-mile-per-hour barrier while riding an Excelsior motorcycle. And it was cool because at that point a car had never gone 100 miles an hour, let alone anything else. So this place is, uh, is doing its job. It has captured the, the fancy of the, the country. It has captured the fancy of the nation. And it is going to open up the taps for dozens of these facilities to be built around the country. But they all won't be built the same way as the Los Angeles Motorrome in terms of a layout. Remember, this place is a perfect circle speedways are gonna are gonna emerge here and they're gonna emerge because people want to see something a little bit different. Not every promoter wants to have the same exact track as a promoter in another city because while well, there is no internet and while there is no real immediate sharing of uh, of information like we have in today's age, everybody wants to have something a little bit different for their own hometown. Jack Prince says absolutely no problem. So Prince continues to elevate And he continues to evolve his principle, starting with that motodrome. He then builds a short half-mile track in Oakland, California, and that is designed primarily and only for motorcycles. And now I think it's a good time to talk about motorcycle racing on the boards before we advance our story any further in history, because it is from motorcycle racing that the board tracks known as motodromes become called around the country murder drones. And it's also because of motorcycle racing that people believe that these racetracks stopped being functional or used before world war one which is as you'll find out in a little while totally false so motorcycle racing as we mentioned was typically done on the shorter styles of racetracks and these shorter racetracks designed primarily for motorcycles could be banked up to 60 degrees and so when you think about a 60 degree banking i mean you can you can go on the internet and Google image search what 60 degrees looks like or you can simply go and Google image search some of the famous board tracks that existed in this time and if you went and do that you'll see some really amazing images of motorcycles, you know, defying the laws of physics. It really almost looks like the wall of death act that you can see at the circus sometimes. You can go and see the riders kind of run around that uh, near vertical drum on their motorcycles. And the wall of death act, of course, evolved from board track racing. But anyway, on these incredibly steeply banked motorcycle centric tracks, the speeds kept getting better. The motorcycles kept getting more powerful companies like harley davidson which had initially resisted motorcycle racing finally came in around 1912 harley davidson came to race they were of course trying to fend off brands like indian and thor and excelsior and um, all these cool early motorcycle manufacturers and once harley got in the game uh things got very very popular and it can be argued that during this particular 1910 to 1915 period that um Motorcycle racing on the boards is even more popular than cars because of the, I guess, overt style of danger that is involved in, in some of the other visuals that a motorcycle racer gives you beyond that of a car. Motorcycle racers during this time could absolutely earn a pile of money because of the danger that is involved in this style of competition. We're going to talk about a couple of very notable and sad incidents here, and the these two incidents are only two among hundreds that would happen across the country. And they're the two most widely reported on because of the fact that they were, these are unfortunately the two that carried kind of the largest death toll with them and, and shocked the public so badly before World War II. The first one comes from September 9th of 1912. And we can look back at the reporting done by the Lexington Herald. And the Lexington Herald uh reporting on an incident that happened at the motorrome in Newark, New Jersey that involved two racers, racers, Eddie Hasha, who was arguably the most famous motorcycle racer of his day, and Johnny Albright. So they both crashed into each other. Hasha was running around the racetrack. He had some sort of a problem with his motorcycle. He reached down, according to the reports filed by the newspaper, reached down to make some sort of an adjustment on the engine, and the motorcycle shot up the banking, ran about 100 feet along the guardrail. And the very unfortunate thing is, during this time period, kids would sit along the guardrail and stick their heads through it to watch the races. So he goes down the guardrail, hits a bunch of children, flies into the stands. The motorcycle now completely out of control, goes down the racetrack, hits Albright, kills him. Between Hash's body, the motorcycle... And the other carnage that was happening, four spectators, up to six depending on what you read, were killed. And 19 other people were injured in this one single incident. The steep banking of these tracks would literally, if you had a problem, would just shoot you out of the racetrack. And because all the people were sitting up on top of that spectator area, on the the top of the curve if you will, they were right in the line of fire. This was a national sensation of a news story. He was going about 90 miles an hour when he crashed, and um, again because of his fame and because of kind of his stature in motorcycle racing, he was one of the guys that you know this doesn't happen to people. You know this is uh, this is just something that uh, that uh, happens to other people. Hasha, during the day or on the day he died, had done an interview with the New York Times, and the New York Times reporter you know, asked him about the danger of this style of racing, the danger of this competition. And this is Hasha's quote from the story that he obviously gave this quote before he got on his motorcycle that day. Eddie Hasha says, I suppose it'll get us all when each of his turns comes, he said. Oh, I know it's a dangerous game, but I'm stowing my money away in the bank and the wife will be fixed up if I go. Well, he went. And Hasha making about $20,000 a year at that time, which is the equivalent of about half a million dollars in, in today's money. Um, he was only 19. He had only really been a pro for about a year. And who's to say he had made anywhere close to that 20? That's, that's just what a top-level pro could earn, if you look back at the prize money and stuff. But his wife, Gertrude, uh, unfortunately was left a widow. Ironically, Gertrude would go on to marry a guy named Al Crocker. If you're familiar with motorcycle history, you know that Crocker motorcycles are some of the most valuable and incredible uh, historical motorcycles you can collect out there. So that is Eddie Hasha in 1912. We go to 1913, about a year later. And again, I'm I'm not insinuating that nothing happened between these two incidents because people would die on the weekly at these tracks. It just wouldn't make national news because, well, it was just another race car driver or a motorcycle rider, or a thrill-seeker that died. And and the public was really really not too keen on treating these racers, the majority of them local racers, that died as anything but just thrill-seekers. The professional-level people, like Hasha and others, were treated as kind of godlike figures, but the normal workaday Joe, who was a mechanic during the week and tried to race his beat-up motorcycle on the weekends, was just another bad-luck case. If he died at his local port track. Now we go to July 20th 1913 to a place called Ludlow Kentucky which is just across the river from Cincinnati and there is a racer named Odin Johnson and this is a this is a horror movie story. So Odin Johnson in much the way Eddie Hasha had problems crashes his motorcycle the thing goes shooting up the racetrack wipes out a light pole and as he wipes out the light pole, remember we talked about these arc light poles that are, are arc lights and the poles are just kind of hung around the racetrack almost like street lights kind of coming off the grandstands. So Johnson's bike flies up, wipes out a pole, his gas tank explodes, so there's gasoline everywhere. As he rip down the pole and exposed electrical wire from the light pole, sets the fuel on fire. Remember this whole thing's made out of wood. Sets the grandstand on fire. People run for their lives. People were trampled. There was eight people killed in this incident. And this one is what coined the murder drone phrase. We can go back to the August 1st, 1913 edition of the Evening Press out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. They wrote a column entitled Thrills and Funerals. And this is where the backlash, if you will, against the board track's began in earnest. Reporting on the Odin Johnson incident, they write, eight dead, two dying, dozens injured, just to gratify an abnormal craving for thrills. That's the record for one evening's motorcycle racing at a Cincinnati amusement park. Motorcycle racing in the so-called motor is one of the sensations of the day. It is comparatively new yet, and it hasn't struck Grand Rapids. Perhaps it never will. If it doesn't, we won't miss a lot of sensations, but probably save our lives. Watching the machines zip around a saucer-shaped track at considerably more than a mile a minute is exciting, but it isn't exactly promoting longevity. Ten given their death blow in one night by one machine is a record showing that the game is risky. And the column goes on to further kind of question the sanity of anybody that would be involved in this, let alone sit there and watch it with the potential of maybe getting hit by a wayward motorcycle. Some people would have you believe at this point in the story that board track racing kind of fades off into the distance and these two horrendous incidents along with dozens if not hundreds more between the 1900s and 1914 put an end to everything. Uh, those people would be 1000% wrong. This thing hasn't even grabbed second gear yet and Jack Prince, um, again, you know, I don't put any blame on Jack Prince for this stuff. It's not a situation where these tracks were built to be unsafe. Yes, of course, they were in hindsight. But Prince was not um, uh, sowing the seeds of their unsafedness, (laughs) if you will, or lack of safety. He was building these very fast facilities. And we're going to talk about some of the mechanical failings that would ultimately cause a lot of the death and destruction that we saw there. But after the 1913 incident Board track racing continues almost unabated, and people keep building racetracks, and they keep building them faster, and they keep building them longer. Over the course of the building boom of board tracks between this 1910, let's call it, opening of the motorrome in Los Angeles until the late 1920s, mid to late 1920s, um, Jack Prince was involved in the construction of about 20 of the 24 major board tracks built around the country. There are a lot of smaller facilities that were built that he wasn't involved in, but if it was a premier level facility, he was involved in it. One of the biggest innovations Prince came up with was in 1915 when he built a new speedway in Des Moines, Iowa. This was not a circle. This was an oval-shaped speedway, the likes of which we are used to seeing in the modern world. The big difference here is that Jack Prince, when he built the Des Moines track, employed something that he called the triple radius curve. And so the triple radius curve changes, in a great way, for speed and entertainment, how these tracks will be built. Instead of having two straightaways joined by two perfect circles, which make kind of a paperclip shape the way we would describe Martinsville Speedway. If you've ever seen a NASCAR race at Martinsville, you know know that it is a, they call it the paperclip, because that's exactly what it is. If you were to cut the entire center out of Martinsville and jab the ends together, you would end up with a perfect circle. The same cannot be said for modern speedways, the likes of which, uh, I don't know, with Daytona, if you were to you know, straighten this, I know that's kind of a D-shaped track, but if you were to take the two big sweeping turns and jab them together, you wouldn't end up with a perfect circle. You'd end up with kind of an oval, almondy shaped thing. Well, that's because of this initial design called the triple radius curve. Now, In the Des Moines Evening Tribune published August 4th, 1915, with a story entitled Prince Explains Track Principle. I'm going to read you this story and you'll understand what I'm saying. And you'll also understand why this innovation changed the way oval track, if we will, or circle track racing was done in this country. And I quote, Jack Prince, builder of the Des Moines Speedway, who, by the way, has built practically every other board track used for bicycles, motorcycles, and auto racing, including Madison Square, Long Island, and Los Angeles tracks, talked interestingly today of the Des Moines Speedway and some of the new ideas incorporated into its construction. Auto race enthusiasts who have not delved into the scientific end of track construction, he said, do not understand why this track, only a mile around, shows greater speed than the two mile track at Indianapolis or the longer tracks at Omaha and Chicago. It's because they do not realize that certain scientific principles have been incorporated into the construction of this track that are not used in other tracks. The sustained speeds at Indianapolis have never been greater than 90 miles an hour for any considerable distance. Here, it has exceeded 100 miles an hour for lap after lap as demonstrated by Oldfield, Berman, O'Donnell, and De Palma. 65 miles has been done on this track at an average of better than 97 miles an hour. It is not due to the fact that the automobiles have not been capable of the speed in the past, but because the tracks were not so constructed so they would hold the speed. On this track, we've carried out the scientific principle of the triple radius in the banked corner. In other words, instead of carrying out the two turns on a common half circle has been done on other tracks and is always done on dirt tracks, we have used three radius points in running out our curves. Leaving the stretch that we have used for a little less than a third of the way through the curve, the segment of that arc would continue and make a common half circle. When we got to a certain point, however, we dropped this segment and got going to another point, and we started another arc, which we carried the circle out and lengthened it and carried this through the second third of the circle. Here again, we dropped the arc and went to still another point and carried another larger arc and carried this to a point directly across from the point where the first arc described left the tangent or stretch. In doing this, we created a track diameter measured from the point of the curve to the point of the tangent of about 212 feet longer than the diameter of a normal half circle. When you drive an auto around the corner at high speed, it skids. The shorter the course, the more the skid. This is why you try for a long turn in driving at high speed. We've applied this principle to our track construction in the building of the triple radius. By increasing and carrying out the curve and using three acres, we meet the tendency of the racing machine at high speed to skid and carry the machine out to meet the tendency. What he's saying is this, guys would try to drive the outside line of these racetracks to get as wide a corner as they could when they had the typical kind of half circle style turns. He altered the racetrack in order to make the car want to do that naturally. And he did it with a bank corner and a relatively flat straight. But he also did it by taking that corner and kind of grabbing it by both ends and stretching it in the middle. It is, in effect, the design of the modern super speedway, which we see today. Again, Talladega, all these places kind of have these big sweeping corners. And that's exactly what Prince did in 1915. 1915 gives way to 16 and 17, and we know what happens in 1917. World War I breaks out and throws a lot of the racing world into a full stop and takes a lot of those racers away and sends them to go fight in World War I. It's now we've got to talk about why board track racing re-exploded in the 20s, who helped it explode in the 20s, and how fast things got going when a real engineer got involved in the construction with Jack Prince. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. So Jack Prince had done incredible things on his own in many ways, building these tracks and he had done them in the way smart people do anything. He built them and learned from each one that he made and then made the next one a little bit better. Bigger tracks. He simply just kind of extrapolated his math. He didn't necessarily have any sort of formulaic plan to build any of these places. It was just when he was going to build a place that was a third bigger than the last one, he would just kind of up the recipe by a third like he was baking a cake and this works to a point, and it certainly worked for to a great point for Prince, but eventually you get to a situation where it does help to team up with an engineer. And his team up with an engineer named Art Pillsbury really came by happenstance, and it turned out to be one of the most uh, fortuitous meetings of his entire life because of the fact that he and Pillsbury would work together from 1919 all the way through the last board track that Prince was involved in building in the later half of the 1920s. Now, I should mention, I, during World War I, there were basically no tracks built during World War I. Um, there was uh, tracks that operated infrequently. As I mentioned, so many of the, the racers had gone off to fight the war, but no new tracks were constructed until we get to the 1919 time frame, which I realize World War I ends in the early 20s. But 1919, uh, the, the war is uh, not as fresh and new, I guess, as we could have said it was in the, in the 1917 time frame. So... When that 1919 track is built, it is a famous place that is the Beverly Hills Speedway. And Beverly Hills, California, obviously, uh, even back in 1919, was a place where rich and famous people lived. It was you know near Hollywood. It was a very glamorous place. And it was also in California, which was incredibly nutso for racing of any sort and form. A Speedway Association was formed. A group of guys wanted to build a racetrack. And initially, they had not talked to Jack Prince about doing this. They were going to kind of do it on their own. The leader of the group was a guy named Cliff Durant, who was the son of General Motors' William C. Durant. And he was a racer in his own right. And he was actually a very good racer, despite the fact he was kind of a you know rich playboy type. Anyway, he brought this group of people together. Uh, Louis Meyer, a very famous race car driver at the time, was part of the group as well. And they had an engineer named Art Pillsbury on their or in their group and Pillsbury was uh, a pretty uh, prolific engineer in California at this time he's a structural kind of civil engineer was involved in a lot of buildings and a lot of different uh, types of projects and he really fell in love with this racetrack formula that they were going to work on so what Pillsbury did was naturally reached out to Prince and he said hey send him a letter hey uh you know is there any way I could pay you five thousand dollars for the blueprints from your for one of your facilities uh, we're going to build a track out here and prince said no but i'm going to schedule a meeting with you i want to talk about this so prince goes out they meet in california they sit down and prince looked pillsbury in the eye and said i don't have a blueprint i got nothing to sell you i wish i could because i'd make five grand but i really have nothing to sell you And it's important to know that when Prince built these tracks, he built them and then moved on to the next one. He never kept any financial interest in the facility. So it really didn't matter to him in terms of, you know, selling a blueprint to Pillsbury for this Beverly Hills track would have been a really easy way for him to make his five grand. So if he had one, I'm sure he would have sold it. So he says to Pillsbury, I got nothing. And Pillsbury's like, "Okay." So he brings Prince in because of all this kind of knowledge he has in his head. And they became friends and worked together, as I mentioned, on every project until they built their last one in the late 20s. But an interesting quote about Pillsbury had about Prince uh, later on in life, he said that Prince was an incredibly able builder, but he was quite innocent of any engineering knowledge. And the fun part for Pillsbury, what he brings to the table in terms of the design of these racetracks is um, something called the Cyril's Spiral Easement Curve. Sounds really awesome, right? The Searles spiral easement curve. What could this thing possibly be? What he comes up with is using something the railroads used in train building or in railroad track layouts to make these courses better. The problem that Prince's track had inherently, especially his speedway style tracks, was that the transition from the straightaway into the corner was very violent. It was a very quick kind of flip up into the corner. When we talk about a speedway we watch a race today we can see the corner kind of the car comes to the end of the straightaway the straightaway almost curls its way into the corner and this is exactly what the searles spiral easement curve brought to the table in a railroad application if you're going to send a train around the corner they always kind of bank the tracks as the train goes into the corner it keeps the thing from rolling off the you know rolling off the outside of a corner it's more comfortable for the passengers And ultimately, it's a safer way to send a train into a corner at speed. If you simply just set a flat corner and send a train into it at 70 miles an hour, I can tell you it's not going to end well. If you then take the tracks and kind of cant them a little bit, give them a little bit of a camber, lay them over to one side to to kind of raise the outside track and lower the inside track and bend that corner easily, that's going to make the train go around it well. The problem with Prince's layout was that when the car would come into the corner, it would automatically want to shoot to the top because it didn't have this kind of spiral easement into the corner. So when Pillsbury brings this design, Prince immediately recognizes what this is going to mean. It is going to mean instantaneously faster racetracks. And he wasn't wrong. The Beverly Hills track, when it opened, was the fastest racetrack in the world at that time. The 1920 season... It was used in the AAA championship, the championship car, champ car series. Jimmy Murphy, a guy who would uh, go on to win the French Grand Prix in a Duesenberg in just a couple of years, um, won the race and averaged more than 103 miles an hour over the course of 250 miles. And it would take the Indianapolis Motor Speedway three years to see anybody go that fast in time trials. So not just an average. No one was even averaging 103 miles an hour at the Indy 500, in 1923, someone just finally made a lap at 120 or at 103 miles an hour average in 23. 50,000 people were on hand for that event at the Beverly Hills Speedway. Beverly Hills Speedway operated for uh, a handful of years, but like everything else in California, the problem was two things. Well, mainly it was just urban sprawl. Every race they had at this facility was by all means, and by all records, successful. But after four years, the 70,000-seat racetrack was taken apart for urban growth. And believe it or not, the Beverly Hills Hotel basically sits on a chunk of the property where the Beverly Hills Speedway was. Simply put, the land underneath the racetrack was worth way more than the, la- than the racetrack on top of it. When they bought the land, they paid $1,000 an acre in 1919 to build the place. When they sold the place four years later, they were paid $10,000 an acre, and they got to sell the lumber. So if you ever go to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, you're basically standing on the northwest turn of what was the Beverly Hills Speedway. A new track was built in Culver City, California to replace this one. It, too, was very, very popular. The interesting thing about board track racing and cars, unlike the motorcycles, was the fact that... The spectators, I cannot find a single incident. I'm not saying it never happened, but I cannot find a single incident involving an automobile race where somebody other than the driver or the riding mechanic was killed. That's not necessarily a great uh, glowing review, but unlike the motorcycle racetracks that had the 60 degree banking, most of these car tracks were banked 30 to 45 degrees, which is still insane. Like the... Beverly Hills track was banked at 45 degrees in the corners. But when the cars would come off the racetrack, because of the fact that they were not running in a total circle, they would normally crash in the corners, and those corners had no spectator stands. The stands were typically lined up along the straightaways. Likely that's the reason why we don't hear about a lot of cars crashing into stands and taking out spectators, which of course is a good thing. Not to say this wasn't dangerous, because... It was incredibly dangerous for the drivers and the riding mechanics who died by the score. And they died, a lot of them, in anonymity. Not all of them, of course, as we get to some of the more famous fatalities. I'll talk about those in a little while. But we need to talk about the downsides of racing on wood at this point. You know, we've talked about, man, these places are cheap to build. These places are quick to build. They don't require anything but a lot of manpower and a lot of wood and a lot of nails. Some of these tracks would use 15 to 18 tons of nails, along with, again, millions and millions of board feet of wood. I mean, we're talking two and a half, three million board feet of wood to build the racing surface with those 16-foot by 4s It's just astonishing. But let's talk about the, the inherent flaws of racing an automobile or a motorcycle on a wooden course. The first one is splinters. Let's think about this for a second. Wood splinters. Uh, when you run an automobile over wood, it tears it to shreds. One of the downfalls of these racetracks was the fact that the maintenance was just unending on them. But for the drivers, they would literally be picking splinters out of their face. On a, on the best case scenario, they would fare well, win some money, and then people would be pulling wood out of their face with tweezers. And these weren't little splinters. I mean, you, multiple stories I've read old books I've read you talk about just crazy stuff these guys would be sitting there and someone a crew guy would be there with tweezers or his own fingers just pulling these hunks of wood out of your face nuts and they would go so deep into your face that they would hit the bone and flatten out that's what a couple of the guys say that the splinters would fly you're going 100 miles an hour literally 120 miles an hour behind somebody and there are splinters flying at you like darts they would stick into your face and go in deep enough that they'd hit the bone and the bottom of the splinter would flatten out. And you'd really have to yank on it to get the uh, to get the splinter out of your out of your face. That's uh, Eddie Miller. Actually, was the quote here? They'd hit the bone and flatten out. Thanks, Eddie Miller. Also, rocks and all kinds of other stuff. Some of the tracks would try to save money, and rather than have the surface be the boards absolutely pounded together and kind of sealed together like a butcher block. Some of the tracks would try to space the boards a little bit by like a quarter inch and fill the, the space in the middle with a like a tar, or they would try to use like asphalt caulking to put between the wood, which ultimately failed, and the tires would rip it out and throw it around, and there'd be rocks in it. Guys would get their goggles smashed out or their teeth knocked out. The cars themselves would get really beat up because the grill would get all full of wood. And again, when I'm talking splinters, I'm not talking about something the size of a, you know, a little sliver of wood that you'd you know, a stick on the ground. I'm talking about something the size of a pen heading at your face or puncturing your radiator or potentially puncturing your arm or hand. I mean, the the injuries that these guys received, even when they didn't crash, were unbelievable. We can talk about the fact that most of these cars, and especially the motorcycles early on, uh, and a lot of the race cars, used what is known as a total loss oiling system. So a total loss oiling system means that your co-driver was basically making sure there was pressure in the oil tank of the car that oil was headed into the engine and it was either going to be burned off if it was going into the cylinders or it was going to be lubricating usually an exposed valve train of rocker arms and push rods and stuff and then it was just going to fly off the engine and land on the track if you have ever driven a car with an oil leak or a car that burns oil You know that the back of the car, where that low-pressure area typically is behind your car, gets all greasy and oily and gross as that oil smoke contains particles of oil, and they get stuck to your car. Well, guess what happens when you have 15, 20 cars with total loss oiling systems on the racetrack at the same time, running at full throttle, flinging oil everywhere? On wood, it turns into a grease pit. And most of the accidents you read or hear about You know, just come from the fact that guys will lose the handle on a car and they'll get into some oil or they don't know it's there. Can't see it. You hit it, you spin out, you smash through the rail, you smash into the rail. And that's the end of your day or the end of your life as it comes to be known for many, 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 many people. Another thing we really need to think about is technology and the chassis technology of these cars, which is obviously very crude. Even when we get into the 1920s, these are not highly advanced cars. For their time, they are. We look back at them, and they're almost like tractors, you know, buggy springs. Um, They make pretty good horsepower. By the time they're done, the the speeds we're going to talk about in the later 1920s are incredibly impressive. But the forces being exerted on these cars were something that were invisible and often deadly. When we come up with the curve that Pillsbury employed, that easement style curve, the spiral curve that brings us into these corners where drivers no longer have to lift off the throttle. You can keep that thing pinned down. The car will basically steer itself. If you've ever seen people driving on a test track or they're driving on a very highly banked track, you can almost take your hands off the wheel when you get into these corners. The thing will about guide itself because of the fact that it has that curve that's brought it to that point. This is cool because It raises average speeds, and that's what people are paying to see. They're paying to see the cars running at full throttle, setting records, doing things they've never seen before. The promoters want that. They want to be able to claim the fastest tracks in the world. But these invisible forces that increase exponentially on these cars when they go from running 100 miles an hour to 120 miles an hour to 130 miles an hour to 140 mile an hour average laps on some of these tracks, things like spindles, axles, springs, frames themselves they start to fail because of the incredible pressures the incredible forces being placed on them as these cars pile into these corners at full throttle they are facing loads that they've never faced before loads that they have no way to test they don't have any sort of strain gauges to put on these cars they have no way to accurately measure the forces being employed when a car is running this fast they just know when they come into the pits if nothing's falling off they're going to send the guy back out again tires were a huge problem and Barney Oldfield famously ran Firestone tires, and he would advertise them as his life insurance policy because they actually were the best tires on the market at that point for racing. Firestone has always had a very strong racing background, and the board tracks are where that was primarily born, with Barney Oldfield being the the greatest proponent of their quality and of their performance. Guys like Ralph De Palma, if you've ever heard the name Ralph De Palma, who's one of the great race drivers to ever live, certainly one of the great rock star race drivers of this era he refused to run Firestone tires because he hated Barney Oldfield and had a big rivalry with him, he didn't put the tires on and he lost dozens of races because of blown tires people lost dozens of lives because of blown tires if there was one thing that killed the most people in cars on these tracks it was blown tires and let's not forget the fact that you would pick up a nail think about that these tracks are nailed together, and half the time they were falling apart as you were driving around about 100 miles an hour, and every once in a while you would drive over a nail in your tank of a race car that would then blow out a tire, and that would send you hurtling up into the rail, hopefully not totally out of the ball yard, and hopefully not onto your lid where there's no protection to keep you from getting crushed by your own car. And yet the people in the car showed up in droves. The thing that most hurt the longevity of these tracks the thing that most hurt board track racing in general was not the negative publicity from people dying because after a while it just became so commonplace. It was just, I don't want to say accepted, but as long as it wasn't a mass casualty incident involving spectators, everybody kind of shrugged and went along their business. It was partially the encroachment of where these tracks were built. We've already seen it once. We'll keep continue to see it out in Los Angeles. We can see it today. Racetrack's getting squeezed out of existence because... The land under the track is worth more for housing development or industrial than it is for anything else. But the most prominent reason that these tracks did not stay open was the incredible cost of maintenance to keep them open and operating in any sort of safe fashion. Even on their best day, they weren't safe. But on their worst day, they were literally death traps. So the tracks in California were made primarily of pine. Most of these tracks are made of pine because it was the cheapest wood most everybody could get their hands on. Pine was thought to be the most... I don't know why anybody thought this, but it was thought to be the most resistant to the sun. And there is no way at this time in history to treat wood. And even if there was, it would blow the cost right out of the water to try to somehow put a treatment on the wood to try to keep it from rotting or warping or anything else. You will see photos online. You'll see photos of racetracks, these board tracks that have not only a board missing, but an entire section of the track missing. And oftentimes during races boards would fall out or boards would break or people would crash and tear boards out sometimes they would actually try to fix these tracks during the race from underneath as the cars were driving around they'd have carpenters underneath trying to bang new boards in other times they'd just leave the holes and make people drive around them and these are not cars that are now going 55 miles an hour these are guys going 120 something miles an hour in these again just absolute tanks of cars and they would be trying to dodge the holes. They'd be trying to dodge other competitors. And some of the racers that were really good would basically know where the bad spots at some of these tracks were. They would know where potential problems would develop, the guys who had been around a while and traveled a lot. But the consideration of the, de- the degradation of the racetrack is really where the longevity of board track racing goes down the tubes. It, it would cost so much to keep investing in the, in the facilities to keep them up. A lot of them mysteriously burned down. After a couple years, they'd have a good run. A promoter would look at the things that needed to be fixed, especially the tracks that were in the east or in the northeast that had to season their way through some winters. I mean, anybody that has had a deck on a house in New England or in any sort of cold weather thing knows what happens. Even with good pressure-treated lumber, it after a few years, it starts to show signs of wear and tear, and that's not with race cars driving over it. So the most common thing that would happen to these tracks if they weren't shut down by urban sprawl is that they would mysteriously burn down because the racetrack owner would look at the place and go, I'm not spending another half a million on this place. I've made enough money as it is. I need to uh, I need to pack it in here. And so that's they would usually blame it on homeless people that were living under the grandstands. If you read the reports of these tracks going out of business or not reopening, it is always homeless people under the grandstands. I don't know how many homeless people and how many states and regions knew about the luxury of living under the grandstands of a board track, but apparently they all did, and they all ended up burning the tracks down. And thankfully, thankfully, these track owners had insurance because most everybody would say, or most all these reports would say at the end of the uh, end of the report would talk about the insurance policy that the owner had on their particular facility. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the ending days, some of the major big and sad stories, if you will, from the board track racing era of cars. When we get into the 1920 timeframe, it is really apparent that board track racing is the fastest form of racing in the world. And this holds true really until until about 1922-23, and again... The increase in, in entertainment, the increase in interest in land speed racing starts to push back on the inc- on the interest in board track racing. It's kind of another of the factors that, uh, that puts these tracks out of commission. Because of the fact that up until people started using beaches and the Bonneville Salt Flats to make land speed runs in these incredibly powerful cars of their day, that board tracks were the fastest tracks in the world, uh, that's where people went to see these incredibly fast cars. Well, all of a sudden, when land speed racing starts to overtake board track racing in terms of outright speed, it takes a little of the edge off. It takes a little of the excitement out of it, if you will. So if we go back and just concentrate on what the circle track performance marks are, a really incredible number comes in 1926, and it's made on a 1.5-mile board track that was built in Atlantic City. And this Atlantic City track, having been built really late in the game, uh, one of the last tracks built in the country, was one of the fastest. It's 1.5-mile oval, has all the latest technology, has all the tips and tricks that, that everybody has learned over the years of building these things now for about 20 years across the country. And Frank Lockhart, on May 27, 1927, made the fastest lap ever on a board track ever recorded over the 1.5 miles, he averaged 147.229 miles an hour, which is insane. Now it's insane in the context of, oh my God, he's driving 147 miles an hour on wood. But let's compare it to the performance numbers of the time. The same Frank Lockhart in the same race car set the pole speed for the Indy 500 in 1927 at 120 miles an hour. The 1.5 mile board track was 27 miles an hour faster than a two mile or two and a half mile oval at Indianapolis. It would be until 1961 that anybody set a speed of 147 miles an hour in qualifying at the Indy 500. Take that into consideration. 1927, he goes 147 on the board track in Atlantic City. 1961, someone finally goes 147. And Indy 500 qualifying. And in fact, a great fact here: Lockhart's speed was the fastest lap turned in race qualifying of any type until April 4th of 1959 at Daytona when everybody in qualifying passed his mark. So from 27 to 59, nobody, nobody on a closed course went faster, than Frank Lockhart's 147-mile-an-hour speed set on May 7th, 1927. Those of you savvy land speed history nuts know that later on that same year, Frank Lockhart would die on Ormond Beach in Florida while trying to set a land speed record. Nobody got out of that game, very few, I should say, got out of that game without some very, very serious consequences in terms of racing in this time of the world two more stories the first being a speedway in altoona pennsylvania and altoona speedway was a one and a quarter mile track that was opened in 1923 triple a sanctioned track so it was the best of the best this was a place that had the uncanny ability to kill indy 500 winners In 1919, or I should say in 1923, Howdy Wilcox, who won the 1990 Indy 500, died. 1924 Indy 500, Joe Boyer died in 1924 on this racetrack. In 1929, Ray Keach, who won the Indy 500, died at Altoona 16 days after winning the Indy 500. Insane. In terms of really high-profile race car driver deaths, obviously those in the the mid-20s to late-20s were very... Uh, prominent, but Gaston Chevrolet was killed in 1920. He was really the first major racing star to die on a board track, and that came in 1920, a big shock. And then in 1924, Jimmy Murphy, the Irish-American racer, who was for a couple years in the early 20s the best race car driver inarguably in the world. He won across the globe, French Grand Prix, of course, again driving to Duesenberg, which was an incredible victory for Americans. There's a whole probably Dorkomotive podcast involved in that story but he was killed in 1924. As I mentioned, board track racing trooped on until the late 1920s and and really kind of into the early 1930s. And in New England, there was prominently two tracks. There was a motorcycle track that was built in Springfield, which happened to be the home of Indian motorcycles. But really, the one we want to talk about here is the one built in Salem, New Hampshire. So uh, Jack Prince, this is basically one of the final tracks he was involved in. It was a one and a quarter mile track that was up in Rockingham, New Hampshire. I should say up in Salem, New Hampshire, called the Rockingham Boards. The track opened with a 49 degree banking in October of 1925. And the very first race held that the track was a disaster. It was postponed twice because of weather. Who would have thought October in New Hampshire would have been cold, but it was. Pete DiPaolo won the race, and somebody died during this first event as a mechanic ran across the racetrack to try to help his driver who had crashed, and he was hit and killed by another car. In 1926, they ran two races. So they ran a single race at this track in 25. In 26, they run two events, had smaller crowds, and a driver named John Foley lost his life. In 1927, they come back, they open the racetrack, they have, you guessed it, another fatality. 1928 comes along, the track goes broke, somebody else buys the mortgage. Huge wrecks, grim situation, a lot of fans even walked out of the racetrack before the event was even over, and they called the race early because of just kind of how much of a calamity it was and the weather had gone bad. So in three years, they ran a total of seven races on the Rockingham board track located in Salem, New Hampshire, and there were three fatal accidents in seven events. They ran motorcycle races there as well. Not a whole lot of news from the motorcycle races, so those must have been run almost without any sort of big problems. By the time we get to 1927, there are basically four, maybe five of these tracks left competing. The other tracks have rotted, they've burned down, they've been forced out of business by urban sprawl, or they've gone bankrupt. We now have a lot of paved roads in the United States. We now have a lot of paved racing facilities in the United States. Dirt track racing, which was at one point seen as an incredibly, incredibly dangerous activity, is now seen as a much more safe activity. In fact, as kind of a full circle here, we can look back to the early 1900s, before the building of that motor in Los Angeles, and we can go back to the New York Times in 19, or rather the Los Angeles Times in 1903, and Barney Oldfield had gone out to set a speed record out in California. He drove around a dirt track, went a mile in 55 seconds. It was a big deal. And the headline in the front page of the LA Times read Barney Oldfield's attempt to commit suicide at Agricultural Park yesterday only resulted in a compound fracture of the world's automobile record. It would seem simpler and easier for him to hire someone to brain him with an axe than to suffer this lingering destruction. And then we get to the 19 teens, and it's the board tracks that are the places where people are having lingering destruction. Then we have World War I, which in itself is one of the world's greatest examples of lingering destruction. We go to the 20s, and finally we get to the early 30s. And the sense has come that it's time for the board tracks to be done. A couple of them did survive a few years into the 30s running midget cars and stuff like that. But ultimately, we can really kind of put an end to the board track era of big-time racing right around the 27-28 time frame. Frank Lockhart's 147 mile an hour speed is beyond the shadow of a doubt in May of 1927, the greatest accomplishment on a board track, the greatest illustration of how awesome these facilities were in terms of speed, and also the fact that everybody was on the ragged edge at all times competing. There is no such thing as safe racing. There never will be such a thing as safe racing in the, in the fully safe sense. Always risk, always danger. The difference is now in the year of 2021, unlike 100 years ago, when somebody passes, we don't shove it off. We don't blow it off. We pay close attention to what happened to try to make things better. Different time, different place, certainly a different mentality. That is a look back into the world of the board track era of racing in America. A lot of great stuff has been written about this era If you want to dive really deep into it, you go back into the newspaper clippings of the time, like those I've referenced in this podcast, and they give you a bird's-eye view of what people's perceptions were, the perceptions of racers as being reckless, as being people with a death wish. The newspaper is questioning the idea that we don't allow bullfighting in America, but we allow people to go out and get killed in race cars and motorcycles, driving in circles, going nowhere. It really was an interesting time in this country, And it certainly was an interesting time in racing when racing was fighting for its own legitimacy. And the people doing it knew it was legitimate. The people funding it certainly were making giant sums of money. They felt it to be legitimate. But the general public really needed to be sold on the value of what racing was versus the potential dangers that it posed to them. We know what happened. Racing evolved. The facilities evolved. Asphalt evolved. Dirt tracks evolved. Everything changed. And the board tracks faded in to history. Hopefully you know a little bit more about board track racing in the United States now than you did when the show started. I sincerely appreciate you listening to the Dorkomotive podcast. You can visit us on dorkomotive.com to support the show. Thanks to Aeromotive for sponsoring this episode as we look back into America's wild racing history. We'll be back soon with more history, more cool machines, and more great stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Loans. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it.